welcome to Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast, episode two. This is to do with The Mugger, the second in the series of police procedural novels by Ed McBain, set in the 87th Precinct on the island of Isola in an unnamed city. And this is 1956 again, uh, second book in a year. Not, not not the last in 1956, in fact, but the second one in the year. And, um, yes, we're going to have a little talk about it now. And I have with me Mr. Stephen Royston. Good evening. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. Uh, who have both been a little bit ill this week. So <laughs> if they sound husky and um, alluring, that may be because of their throat conditions. <laughs> and if there's strange breaks in recording, it may be because um, we've had an attack of coughing or anything like that. But it is... December, so this is our um, first annual general meeting slash Christmas party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, the office team. So I'm dressed as a reindeer, uh, Steve-O's dressed as a snowman, and Morgan's dressed as a robin. Mm. So, and we're all drinking eggnog. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's true. Anyway, I've got some housekeeping off the back of last time, things I thought we needed to deal with, and that is one of those is the scoring system. Now, no right-thinking people were going to s- score a series of books out of 15, each awarding <laughs> a third of the, the points each. So I, I am proposing... That I give, thought we marked it out of five. We did each, and then we ended up adding it up. Did we? Mark, I can't remember. Which is a silly thing. So what I'm proposing is... Sounds quite logical. <laughs> to some extent, and I, I, we retain that basic principle, but yeah. I think... We're going out of 100 now, and we average our scores. Ooh. You know, because I think these books, we need five... Well, it gives us more... Uh, fine gradation. For, uh, oh, yes, good. indeed it does. Do we need to um, go back I've and... recalibrated the first ah. one by adding our things up and doing some... What I believe what the kids he, are calling did, maths. And what did he get to? And so Cop Hater now has officially 86 out of 100 shields. 86 out of 100? That's pretty strong. I think it's strong. Well, see, well despite me... Of course, I, I awarded it full marks last time, mm. full shields, but actually the numbers come out like this, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a good starting point I score, so. actually. I think it's more reflective of its, perhaps its place in the, in the mm. canon. Yeah, works for me. Things. Also, we've moved uh, the room around, and so the naughty ladder is in a different corner now and isn't, haven't, hasn't had to be wrapped up in a uh, sleeping bag. <laughs> yeah, so the other bit of uh, housekeeping is to say we've had some, some feedback not well, not feedback so much as comments. Um, so the Twitter feed Crikey. at Hark at Hark87 podcast. I had two comments which I thought were interesting. Uh, one was from someone called Kate McAvoy at I'm Kate Muck, um, who said, You've made both me and my father very happy. Oh, McBain is an intergenerational pursuit in our family. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Uh, thank you, Kate. And someone called Lulu, um, at does it say. Um, says, I've loved this world since my dad introduced me 30 years ago. Aww. Which I think were interesting comments because one of the first things we said was, how did we get into it? And it was, your dad introduced it Absolutely. to you. Absolutely, yeah. It is definitely a thing to be passed down through the generations. So, so it's really nice to hear that, that other people have had the same experience. Yes, it is. And we were also contacted by a chap called uh, Vic McCunis. And he presents a programme on WYSO 91.3 in America called The Book Nook and one of the very few other podcasts where there's anything about Ed McBain at all is the archive of The Book Nook and I listened to that before we started doing the podcast and so he, he sent a message saying that he'd done one on there which means uh, 
We've had a message. We've had a contact from someone who has met Ed McBain. Christ. So the degrees of separation, <laughs> albeit digital, are... Uh, very close. Very close. We can't get any closer, In- really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was nice. So thank yeah, you, Vic. Yeah, excellent. Fantastic. And I will be listening to some more of the Book Nook things, I think, because it's lots of good author interviews. And uh, Vic has a very uh, intriguing voice that keeps you drawn in and listening. We should work on one of those. We should, yeah. Well, you a bit like yours. A bit like mine, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll, 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 I'll try and have that down for uh, next episode. Yeah. You know, what you're going to do is take your bad throats and you just want to sort of smooth them over with honey. Um, <laughs> or something like that. We're going to get straight on to the mugger. First and foremost, Morgan, this is the first time you've read this. It is indeed. So you sought it out and read it. What's your overall first impression? I really enjoyed it, actually. I, I think um, it was interesting to read the preface where McBain's uh, explaining how its origins as a, a pre-87th Precinct short story. Um, OK, so I don't know this story because the edition that ah. I have, is, is that in your edition as well, Steve-O? It is, yeah. So you, I think, you've, um, got the, uh, you've got one of the jazzy 70s. Yeah, I've uh, got a, a, We'll uh, describe them in detail but, uh, um, later. But... Well worth losing the preface to get the, the jazzy 70s cover, I'm sure. But um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I think at least one of the two sort of main strands of, of the, the novel comes from a pre-87th um, precinct short story. So that was, that was interesting. I, I, I like it. I think, I think it's, it's, it's a strong um, second part of the series. Uh, stands up really well. You know, you, you, with any series, you get the odd one where you feel like it's been relatively phoned in, but this isn't one of them. I've, I was uh, very happy to finally get on board. Now it's interesting that he had material in, in existence already as a as a way. That's so. I imagine quite a lot of mystery writers must yeah, do this kind so, of thing. Yeah, I so because if you're constantly needing plots and, mm. and and intrigue, you're probably jotting down all sorts. I would have thought. I've forgotten off the top of my head what the uh, original title of the, the short story was. It was some dreadful pun, wasn't it? Oh, excellent. Steve-O could perhaps... Yeah, let something. me have a see here. Um, he does mention his uh, protagonist, Matt Cordell, in those... Uh, just have a look here. I'm not sure he mentions it, actually. He definitely does. I, unless I've just invented my own terrible pun, <laughs> which is not entirely implausible, but... I feel certain it was in there. Now die in it. Is that what you are? You've wearing? made your bed. Now die in it. Yeah, that was that was. Oh, the, excellent! Uh... That's very good. I like yeah. that. Now die in it. <laughs> excellent. You want dies with that? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think actually, I mean, the eighty seventh precinct series does have some, not puns so much as joke titles mm. as, it, as things oh, go yeah, along. Absolutely. Once he gets away from the sort of dun 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 type title. Cop hater, the mugger, da-da, These The early ones do start off with kind of an archetype of a criminal and then they don't necessarily actually take you where the title seems to be leading you. But yeah, that that's like the early theme, isn't it? It is, it is certainly. And I think one of the interesting things with the title of this, so you you get commissioned for a three-book series and your first book's called Cop Hater. <laughs> and it's dun-dun-dun! And the next one's called The Mugger. Which, out of all of the crimes you could pick seems at first sort of thought mm. to be quite a sort of, you know, mugging can be violent, but it's rarely associated mm. with murder or anything too extreme. So he's done something quite clever in leading you down a little bit of the garden path as usual, yeah. as the way good crime writers do, by calling this the mugger and ostensibly having it about a fantastic 
mugger who has the personality trait of once he's actually mugged you, bowing to you and uh, giving his um, little catchphrase of Clifford, thanks you, madam. And so it seems at first like this is going to be a very comedy book about them trying to catch this wily scamp who always wears yeah. sunglasses and mugs at yeah, night. And... Slight, slightly wacky mugger apart from his... his habit of beating up women yeah that's where he adds in the uh, the violence element is that he does like to pummel them he does yeah should he not get away very easily so there's a sort of weird comic disconnect there between clifford thanks you madam and assault mm. yeah so it's no there's no shock that the uh, 87th precinct are all out to get him yeah i wonder what happened when Ed went into the office or to talk to his publisher or Evan went into the office and talked to his publisher. The first one was cop hate, the second one's the mugger. And they were like, what, not the terrorist? Not, you know... And he's like, no, the mugger, but I think he was right. I yeah, know. I think he's probably <clears throat> part of his uh, intention of painting a bit more of a picture of the day-to-day workings of the city, really. Yeah, a bit more n- a... not, not every day is going to be the, 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 the big case. Or it's not going to seem like it's going to be the big case. Maybe it turns out to be the big case yeah. in the end, but it could, uh, there's a lot of kind of commonplace stuff that happens too. I think you're entirely right because the it's the nature of the procedure of police procedurals is if you've got to make it like a, a, an effective working police department, otherwise you lose your reality that you've built up in the story or your you know your commitment to that reality anyway. Oh, so absolutely. to have a prosaic title does does reflect that, and the fact that at the end of the book we have a little chapter. So missing from the book. This time, in what is a shock move if you've read the series later on and are used to this, um, Detective Steve Carella, our de facto hero, is not in this book at all until the last chapter where he just pops back and things just start ticking over again, which is quite a bold move, really. But there is a reason for him not being there. I think it's to give space for patrolman Bert Kling. Indeed. Who gets to be the hero of the piece this time. And in fact... In a way, he's almost, he's made into a MacGuffin for it as well, <laughs> in that the baddie uses him to put uh, events in motion. What I thought I would like to ask about and see what you thought about is uh, some of the characters are uh, mentioned in the first book are fleshed out, some are extra ones come in, so we have a couple more names of detectives in, in the thing, and one of them in particular is Detective Roger Haviland. Ooh, yeah. He's not a nice man, is he? He's not, no. Um... Does he briefly appear in the first? I think he's in it briefly. Yeah. Because re- reading this back, he, there's uh, there's certain characters that you kind of recall and obviously are featuring a lot of the uh, the the series. Um, Roger Haviland isn't one of them really, and I must admit I'd ent- totally forgotten about him really. Uh, yeah, um, he, did, he relatively slipped my mind too. But yeah, he's an early example of the fact that. Um, it, like the authors by no means painting all the cops in the precinct as knights in shining armor who are a hundred percent incorruptible and charming law enforcers. Yeah. Uh, he's he's kind of a brute. He's a thug, isn't he? And he's yeah. And I think one of the reasons he might not stick or linger in memory is because as the series goes on and new police procedures come in and new expectations are had of the police in the real world. That obviously has to be reflected in the fictional world. And so police brutality, well, while we can't say that that just vanishes in, in reality, it becomes much more stamped on. So someone like Roger Haviland is a real throwback thug cop mm. who beats people up 
and gets cross when he can't in an interrogation mm. and likes to say things like, oh, he fell over and hurt himself, call a medic. Yeah, yeah. I think he's explained that he's, you know, he's taken the, <clears throat> the pragmatic view that that's the way to get results, hasn't he? Uh, yeah. That's his kind of so, yeah. self-justification. For, yeah, and for his Harry. character's developed from when he was quite a nice person who yeah. got beaten up yeah. and decided yeah. he would never be never be the victim again himself so treats everyone else like a victim and ma- or makes them one <laughs> yeah. um, so he's an interesting character and also in the squad room for the first time female detective oh yes indeed yes he's, yeah um, so it's Eileen Burke Eileen who, Burke yeah. who reading back um, uh, this uh, book this week I, I'd totally forgotten that she appears so early in the series ah, I had it in my uh, kind of uh, dubious memory that it was 10 books or so in yeah. when she, when she first uh, cropped up but um no um a, a very early entry and um for a female detective yeah. and what struck me is so it's 1956 still and he's written in a female detective uh, and although she doesn't have particularly a, a massive amount of detecting to do mm. she is basically she volunteers to be bait for the mm. mugger she's Still quite a hard ass, and there's quite a good scene yeah. with a with a drunken sailor, which is funny and sort <laughs> of quite powerful as well. But in British police stories, um, and that includes TV and film, you don't ever see a female detective for for many many years. Probably not until you're into the eighties. Probably as Pretty as a much, regular yeah. thing. Yeah, I think so you're right there. Any yeah. female police officers tend to be, you know, they're, they're WPCs and they're either making tea or they're taking mm. off a victim and being nice to them. Absolutely. Or, you know, perhaps brought in to search a female suspect or something like that. Yeah. So I think in many ways, although sexism and, and stuff like that does crop up later, is addressed sort of in, in more effective ways, I think, in some of the later books, it's nice to see that he's got a female character in there right from early on in the series, who's a yeah. detective and not just a clerical officer Absolutely, or something like that. Absolutely, yeah. And like a really powerful, ballsy female character kind of right off the, the bat, really. Yeah. Um, and whilst like the, there are definitely the, the, the trappings of the, their times like around the, the way the books are written, it's, a lot of the, the elements of, of these novels are quite progressive, really. There are some quite progressive um, political views, which you don't necessarily expect in a, a novel that's written sort of from the point of view of the police. Yeah. And, and yeah, just having, like, strong female characters is, is one of the ways that that comes out. Yes, definitely. Which is great. And whereas um, <clears throat> characters such as Roger Haviland <clears throat> don't feature in many of the future uh, novels. Um, Eileen's in quite a few during yeah, the yeah. duration of the series. You, you, and you do still get bad cops cropping up because that's obviously a thing that will always happen in the police force. Um, well, uh, uh, another thing I recall is um, Detective Second Grade, I think, which is um, a promotion higher than uh, Steve Carella uh, ever achieves in 40 years of policing. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, there's not much... Uh, movement in promotions other than in this book where oh, Kling wow. eventually through his actions moves from patrolman nope. into detective but not before running into the first appearance of the oh. homicide detectives Monaghan and Monroe <laughs> not Monaghan and Brill they're from Quincy um, and they're a very different kettle of fish indeed but Monaghan and Monroe who turn up in most of the books I think they're often there aren't yes they? <clears throat> as the first on the scene at a, at a uh, when a body turns up, yeah, 
They're normally there to provide a couple of uh, pages of gallows humour before the real action starts, yeah. aren't they? And to have a swipe at the cops of the 87th Precinct. The people who do the actual police work, yeah. But here, they don't turn up in that capacity. They turn up to drag Kling off to uh, uh, the chief of the detectives to tell him off for investigating a, a crime on his own time when he should be leaving it up to the actual detectives. And it uh, try, almost puts the mockers on his uh, relationship with Claire Townsend, who is not a suspect, but one of the people he's interviewing about this. So he's uh, there's a, a bit of this um, work and play crossing over eventually. And there's my favourite scene in this book is the one where he's trying to... Um, he, takes, he eventually gets her on a date and he takes her out to a restaurant. And it's supposed to be a, you know an amazing restaurant looking over the river. And we find out that the reason she's very closed off is because when she was young, she lost someone to the Korean War. But the scene is amazing, the actual scene in the book, because it goes on about the um, sign blinking across the river, Mm. spry, spry for frying, spry for baking. And it's sort of like, why does he keep talking Mm. about this sign? And the only thing I've found out is, from a literary point of view, it's sort of just, it's like, it's bright and brashy, but it's just reality. It's normal. It's this thing just invading. It's out there. It's a, a landmark, but it's something quite, you know, it's it's vegetable shortening mm. product, basically. And it's it's flashing. Instead of being a big, you know, romantic thing, you've got yeah. this background of this scene. is just an advert for some fat. <laughs> but the spry sign itself is was a real-world thing. Mm. It was in New Jersey. Ah, so it overlooked yeah. the, uh, the River Hudson. So there's actually a real-world landmark from New mm. York has crept into you know, the gap between realities and is there in oh. in this one. I suppose it's not inconceivable that the Spry Company could have had two similar signs uh, no. in different East Coast cities. So yeah. uh, that makes sense. But that just thought was very interesting. <laughs> and and cool. it's a very good scene because it, it, it's um, emotion-wise it goes up and down mm. and across and the uh, author's voice around it talking about waiters and things. Yeah, I love how the narrator starts by talking about the kind of cliches of, of a romantic night out and how the the, uh, the waiter hovering over you attentively, um, suggesting romantic specialities and and then obviously showing the contrast between that ideal and and the, the date at hand. And then obviously as, as the, the scene progresses... Uh, things turn around and uh, it's beautifully handled. I, I yeah. think it's, it is definitely one of the, the best uh, set pieces in the book. Because there is, I think there's an element of these books that's almost not soap opera, but it's 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 human drama because there's a relationship element. Mm. I mean, most of them cross into the police work. Oh, I think you're right, <clears throat> and I think in the series a lot of those are fairly um, unique to Corella and Kling. Really, they're certainly throughout the the entire series of books, the ones that you get, and another character, Cotton Hawes, that you get most of the background of their personal That's lives. True. Yeah, they, they, they. Um, whereas, you know, there's other characters that have, um, feature as often uh, as, as, say, Kling, but you don't really yeah. get the background uh, to, to their lives, really, in the but same yeah. way. He likes to have that, that overarching kind of... Um progression where you can can just keep up keep track of that too which adds just another element along with the mystery well uh, Kling and uh, Claire's date starts with them Mm -hmm. in her flat listening to the hip new sounds of 1956 Bach's Brandenburg Concerto number five uh, Strauss's Don Quixote and Frank's Psyche Um, this is a book that's released or is set around the time when um, 
Don't Be Cruel by Elvis Presley comes out. And it's like, oh, indeed, that's yeah. what the hip kids are at home listening to, uh, Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5. Well, indeed, no less. She, she's, she's like older than the other kids who she hang is, out yeah. at, at the club, isn't she? So, like, but maybe by 19 or however old she actually is, like, they're, they're all like past Elvis and they're. Mm. Uh, Already onto the Brandenburg concert. Well, they're still going down club tempo for a good time with, oh, the, yeah. with the young kids. <laughs> like maybe after this next Bobby Darren number, they're going to play some back. <laughs> yeah, they're going to put on uh, so, you know some hide <laughs> in the gaps between the uh, the beat numbers. Club tempo sounds like a hit place to be. It, it, it sure does. Certainly does, yeah. What what kind of age is that aimed at? I because it's... <clears throat> I think the the two. Um, Kids that cling interviews, even they're kind of older for the for the the normal attendees. You get the impression, yeah. and perhaps are I don't there. Know, this must a... be like a sort of youth club. Yeah, kind of I, I think basically, yeah, it's like disco place. Yeah, sort of organised by kids for kids kind of thing. Um, yeah. I guess it's it's like a culture that we, we we'll never really ever be able to get a handle on, but yeah. um, it's Both quite interesting. For, for purposes of time and uh, by virtue of being um, British as well. Yeah. Whereas but, perhaps maybe it's a bit like a sort of like the kids are organising their own sort of coffee bar type. Thing. I, I, I imagine it very much like some Adam Faith movie yeah. from 1956. <laughs> no one, no one says Daddy O in it. I don't think though. Sadly not. Or um, straight from the fridge. No, which, straight from which the fridge. Is a disappointment. Well, you know. If we could go back in time, wouldn't we all go to Club Tempo with its little card? I sure would. Its little card, it's one of the reproductions in the book, of which there's a few, like the fingerprint um, yeah, fingerprints. Oh, yeah. I like this, the map of the uh, crime scene when the body turns up. I suppose we'd better mention that. It isn't just a mugger, a body turns up, who we are led to believe has been killed by the mugger going too far. It seems plausible. There are clues. There are clues. The evidence points that way. Were it not for one uh, determined patrolman who's on mm. sick leave after being shot in the first book. So there's a map, yes. Which I think is fairly, uh, fairly baffling as maps go, really. Um, this is true. Well, you know, you're uh, from a geology background. Well, I think you should, exactly, you should know something yeah. about um, topography. Geology. Let me just compare uh, compare <laughs> maps. Yeah, it's very, uh, very similar. I think yours has got slightly more clarity than mine, actually, which may explain. Uh, well, you know, penguin edition. We expect only the best from the uh, the flightless bird. Uh, yeah, I, I, I do love these these. Insets about mm. like, reproduce, reproduced forms, like the fingerprint thing. Which, I mean, in reality, looking at a plate of fingerprints is not going to tell you, the reader, anything. Except that then they have someone explain why it's important. Mm. They have someone explain what, you t- what you're looking for. Yeah, and well, the, the language of the, of the process, isn't it? just it? brings you in. It gives it a bit more of a sense of documentary somehow. And it, it just kind of involves the, the reader a bit more in the whole process, I think, which is great. It, it does, because in the same way, that map has absolutely no bearing whatsoever. <laughs> Unlike the case, its outcome. Uh, yeah. It's not no, like you're, the reader's going to look at the map and go, oh, I know, I know who did it. Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, they're just a bit of fun, really. Um, um, and we, we, Which... Um, I think uh, McBain also achieves here with his uh, ongoing joke of some comings and goings in the is it the thirty third precinct? Yeah, well, this is one of this is another trope that starts cropping up. Is that so? We get introduced to Maya Maya for the mm. first time in this book, who's who's a very long running character from mm. here on in, um, and 
apart from the fact that he has the same first name as his last name, and that's explained every time with a varying level of detail. Mm. Um, he is described as being so patient, and he can drag out these jokes <laughs> with his partner over the entire length of the book. And there's normally an awful payoff mm. for it as well, and the one in here is just... It's, it's just ab- Absolutely shocking. <laughs> just but terrible. I like the way the book ends with um, Corella coming back and the guy who he's told the joke to, the guy who's tortured his partner by sort of dragging <laughs> this joke out for ages, is like, tell him, that, tell him the joke about the cats. Tell him the joke. <laughs> and it sort of just carries on from there. So it's sort of squad room banter, I suppose. Of course, but it's, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that's with the Temple. Yes. Who partners... Uh, yeah. I've always called him Maya Maya, but... Uh, well, I call him Maya Maya because there's reference to the rhyme "pants on fire." Yeah, but then I don't great. have a uh, an Isola accent. No, and I wouldn't true. even know how to start to do one. But Temple is not a character I remember from any of the other. Yeah, I think he possibly. So um, he's still playing around with his uh, ensemble. Yeah, I mean, um, he's not got it completely set in stone yet. Yeah, because he mentioned in the first book that the squadron's made up of sixteen. Um, detectives. Which gives um, him a lot of leeway. Yeah, by this point, I don't think we've got 16 names. Given, yeah, given about three or four being wiped out in, in the, the first, uh, yeah, in the first three, yeah. A matter of months before. Because um, I think this, as I was mentioning in the last uh, uh, edition, kind of continues in the seasonal sequence. It does this really, yeah. it, so. After the heat wave of the first book, we're into uh, uh, autumn. autumn. Aren't we? Yes. we are. And so basically. It'll be um, good to keep testing that, but that's something I certainly remember as being certainly true. Certainly, I think the first three books definitely do. And uh, we've I, think, based... I think they all do. Uh, I'm yeah. pretty sure. Um, and Steve and Teddy have been on their honeymoon for, I think, a month um, during the period with this book, which this book takes place, mm-hmm. which is you know a nice long honeymoon for Lovely. them, isn't it? Lovely. Fair. And, yeah, so it, we're moving into September. and Well, we're not moving into it. We are in September in this one. So... The other thing that appears for the first time in here is um, pigeon stools. <laughs> pigeon stool, <laughs> our second pigeon stool. Oh or, yeah, or even our stool pigeon, Fats Donner. Oh, he's great, Donner. Fats Donner. He, he's he's certainly an entertaining presence. Yeah, but oh, he's described as being so fat he uses the plural, <laughs> and it's more than one fat. Yeah, obviously Fats Domino would have been in the charts at the time or there or thereabouts or certainly one chart or another so the nickname was obviously in the air but I, I do like that when the uh, stool pigeons sort of get involved in the story mm. and get their sort of like a vicarious thrill from when they finally identify something and in this in this one normally you see Fats Donner in a steam room don't you mm-hmm. Just very fond of his Turkish <clears throat> baths he actually gets involved a little bit in yeah. this and um, yeah it's part of uh, Takes Some outdoor action, oh, taking yeah, cr- Hal to a yeah, uh, Hal to a, a crap game. Crap game, yeah. There's some some very exciting uh, period slang going on in there. there Completely we... incomprehensible. Dead good. Yeah, there's everyone in the in the um, crap game has a nickname. Yeah, it almost becomes like some kind of Damon Runyon story for a minute there, it, it, which is great. Where he uh, yeah, the chap he's befriending is a fellow marine, I think. And so oh, that's yeah. right, yeah. You start getting convinced that uh, you know they get a bit chummy and it's a bit of a revelation about what the uh, this chap's been up to to make ends meet. And you, yeah, he's you got w- a, a similar mo to our suspect, so you kind of think, well, let's see. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you, uh, Hal kind of quizzes him, gets a bit of information, and you kind of wondering whether. 
perhaps that's the end of that, but then you find the beginning of the next but to, chapter. In order to question uh, him, he has to get him out of that crap game, and he does that by starting a fight, basically, <laughs> and getting him on side against characters who are referred to as Turtleneck, Gravel. Who else have we got? Hook Nose. But yeah, I like the nickname yeah, of Gravel. There's some good ones. Yeah. I enjoy the, the, the dice game. I like... like uh, the, the accusation of the loaded dice being phrased as, uh, are these dice talented? Oh, yeah. <laughs> talented <laughs> dice. Yeah, they do all sorts. Variety dice. Mm. Okay, so the upshot of this then is that we start to, uh, we get a book that starts to pull together all the main characters. So at this point, Kling's the hero. Could he be the hero in the next book? Is Corella's back? Is he going to be the hero? Or would we keep building up a Gestalt hero? I think to some extent we get little. Little threads of all of those things. I'm, I'm fairly sure even McBain didn't know really mm. at the time. I mean, you know, the, th- the first three books are kind of taken a, a slightly bit in isolation for reasons that will, well, for the, it was original commission, but also plot-wise, as we'll explain in the uh, in the next edition. Yeah, but uh, I, think... I think it's it's clear that he there's no particular lead in the first book oh. Corella slightly this Corella's not around and somebody else takes centre stage and I, I get the feeling that McBain himself wasn't really sure quite how it would all pan out really no indeed um, and perhaps with that many characters you can keep your options open a bit Absolutely, so you make yeah. them all interesting and you? there's lots and lots of central characters who haven't even been mentioned once yet in yeah. the first two books absolutely it's still to come so so we need to have a look at scoring this now using our, our new 100 shield each awarding system oh. and then an average so I'm going to come round to um Steve O for your number first. It's, it's tricky. It's tricky because <laughs> I, I do reading this back. I really, I recalled, I really enjoyed it the first time around, and uh, meeting Bert and Claire and Maya for the first time. Um, that said, plot wise, I think there's better in the series. So I, I think I will stick to. I think I will go eighty out of a hundred. I think it's 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 up as uh, up as one of the, um, yeah, one of the one of the best in the series um, in terms of its freshness. I, I really enjoyed it first time around and second time around. Okay, so we've had an eighty from Steve O. Morgan cool. as a new reader to this book, not a reader on this occasion. Well, um, yeah, what I, I mean, I agree with everything Steve said. Really, I think I think it's there's a lot of strengths. A lot of the the character stuff is great. I like the um, the intertwining plots and also the 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 running theme of uh, uh, Maya Maya being on the stakeout because that's the drudgery of police work as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the things that make the series great. Again, I also agree that maybe it's not the absolute best overriding plot, but, you know, a very strong entry in the series. I'm going to go for a solid 74, I think. 74. My score for this is um, somewhere between the two, and I do like it. Again, I agree with you, Steve. I think it's got so much of the... so much freshness to it still after the first book, which is so intense... And I like your comment there about the, you know, it reflects also the drudgery. Um, there is an element of coincidence in the setup of the entire 
main crime in it that I find a little bit funny. <laughs> um, but then I know one of the things he says about these things is coincidence is always a part of, of police work as much as anything. But I, I seem to remember that's probably something that can be levelled at quite a few of the... Uh... The, the entries in the series for uh, and also an awful lot of most crime fiction. Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> there is. Yeah, there's something a bit funny about it in how it's set up. But not. I don't consider it particularly bad. But it does mean that I'm awarding it uh, a middle ground of those two scores of seventy six. So that gives us an overall score of. Um, not that. That's. <laughs> I've just used a calculator to work out an average because I'm not very good at sums and I managed to make it more than 100%. You should well have claimed to have uh, been using some kind of elaborate totalizer machine like on a game show. Well, I say calculator. I do, of course, mean Kenneth, don't I? <laughs> Absolutely. Our computer Kenneth, who calculates every number nearly every time, honestly. Um, and on that occasion... Well, I think you'll find 76 the... is the uh, average. Well... 76.6, and I think we round down in this show. We round down? That's, that's against I conventional that. maths. Well, I don't care. I'm, <laughs> I'm, we are on, on this podcast. I've always considered myself to be outside the world of conventional maths. Okay. Um, well, we're cool. just to, uh, yeah. And so I'm, we're calling it 76 police shields. Two significant that's, figures. 76 is, is a, a good, solid number of police shields, I'd say. I think so. I think so. that's a fair representation of this fine novel. And when we're a few more books along, we'll be able to start to see the pattern emerging. We will. And we'll produce an elaborate graph. Indeed. Okay, so that's all for this edition of the podcast. This is Dealing with the Mugger by Ed McBain. And we'll do a short bonus podcast that'll be out in a couple of days looking at the covers of our editions of the book and answering a question from our number one fan that was submitted to us. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. And thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) Well, it adds character.